Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. I am Solomon Kane. I'm Sean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro journalistical podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have, as John so wonderfully intimated, have watched Solomon Kane, which is a dark fantasy film from the year 2000 and... 2009 or 2010? 2009, kind of... I think. Yeah. Film I don't know. I think it premiered in 2009 somewhere, but I think its yeah. wide release was in 2010. Yeah. Because it was kind of unclear. I saw multiple different things. Yeah. Uh, it came out we... in a couple of countries. It came out in France, Kazakhstan, and Russia in 2009, <laughs> everywhere else in 2010. Oh, that tracks. That tracks <laughs> hard. Um, I actually do have uh, quite a bit to say about Solomon Kane, but before we get to that. Wasn't it Romania? Or some shit? Um, I'm not sure. Let me just double check. I would not check be surprised. It, I, I, it has Czech, a... Republic. Czech Republic. Czech Republic. Czech Republic. Yeah, yep. that that makes a lot of sense. That you got to keep those costs low. Oh yeah. Uh yeah. But before we talk about that, we'll talk about what was seen within the week. We all went to see. To, we all went to see a movie at the cinemas last night. Yes, we did. We all went and saw Ant Man and the Wasp. Quantum Mania, which is a superhero movie directed by Peyton Reed. It's based on the Marvel Comics series, and in it, the Ant family, uh, Scott, played by Paul Rudd, Hope, played by Evangeline Lilly, Hank, played by Michael Douglas, Janet, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and Cassie, played by Catherine Newton, are pulled into the quantum realm. They sort of make the mistake of sending a signal down into the quantum realm, and something happens, and they get pulled in, and there they discover something that Janet's been keeping to herself, which is that the quantum realm is populated by tiny little quantum people. Um, and it's like worlds within worlds within worlds, whole civilizations down there. And uh, it's sort of being terrorized, ruled over by a despot named Kang, played by Jonathan Majors, uh, who has a connection to Janet and a mysterious origin, which will basically affect the next five years of the MCU. Um, so before I do my thing, why don't you guys each say what you thought? What did you think, Harley? I had a really great time with this one. It's definitely the best of the Ant-Man films, like by a pretty wide margin. I do enjoy the first Ant-Man, but I found the second just pointless. Like who was even Walton Goggins in that one? Just some guy? Mm-hmm. This Ant-Man film here actually trades in a lot of really interesting stuff. Peyton Reed as a director and the writers involved in this can actually do creative stuff this time around. They're not just in San Francisco fighting criminals. This is the quantum realm. There's really strange looking beings down there. Um, I, I think on that regard, it's actually quite an interesting adventure. Very similar to something like Tron Legacy. Uh, obviously not one-to-one, -one, but similar vibe. And they spend most of the movie in the Quantum Realm. And that was a sight for sore eyes. Uh, so, I love what they did with Kang. Jonathan Majors was perfect choice for the anchor point for this 
film. Brilliant, brilliant choice. And he's the anchor point for the next, like Lawson said, five years of the MCU. And there's no better person they could have chosen. I don't know. John Lithgow. Well, Can you imagine obviously. John Lithgow as all of the Kane variants? <laughs> Kang variants? Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. I actually can, and that's pretty sick. But you, really... you want someone who's like fully prepared to do this for a while. That's oh, true. I think I think park enough trucks of money at Lithgow's house, and I think he'd be willing to throw down with Paul Rudd. Look, I know I that exhaust him. I know that um, Harrison Ford is like a really great pick for Thunderbolt Ross, but part of me just sees what could have been with a Lithgow casting and. You know, I reckon that would have been real solid. Yeah, because you wouldn't have been able to get honestly, to see him turn into Red Hulk. Honestly, if, if, cast, casting Harrison Ford as Thunderbolt Ross does nothing but tell me that um, Thunderbolt Ross is not making it out of the Thunderbolts. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, if, he's, that's one movie. Come on, guys. <laughs> if Harrison Ford said no, they would have gotten Dennis Quaid. Or Kevin Costner. Or Kevin I, Costner. I feel like it trickles down. It goes Ford, Costner, then Quaid. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. But either way, Ant-Man and if they, and if, was... And if Quaid says no, then you start looking at, like, one of the Houstons. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I really enjoyed or Randy, this. Randy Quaid. Yeah. <laughs> Randy mm. Quaid, Thunderbolt Ross. Nick Nolte. You, really, you, do, you don't want to get that desperate. You just don't want to get Gary, that desperate. Gary Busey as Red Hulk. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. It's Nick Nolte when he's normal, but when he's Red Hulk, you just swap him out for Gary Busey. <laughs> <laughs> you just Lou Rigno him up. You just cover him with red paint. No, you just cover his face wig. with red paint. The rest of him is just... <laughs> Can you imagine... Uh, now, now I'm imagining Gary Busey as Modoc. Oh, That would have been incredible. But anyway, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. What did Jean Lewis think of it? I really enjoyed it for what it was. It is very fantasy. It is very sci-fi. It feels like a Star Wars crossed with a Tron legacy. And because of that, Peyton Reed is allowed to actually be creative with the movie. You've got all of the interesting shrinking stuff in the first two, but it's very much set in our world in those first two, and they're very much pedestrian stories. Here, we're allowed to have a large scope where Kang is the villain. And Kang is great here. Jonathan Majors crushes it as Kang the Conqueror. And just from the small bits we've seen of other variants of him, obviously we had He Who Remains in the first season of Loki, and we're getting more of him in the next season. But even in very short moments of him as other ones, he's very much got an interesting vibe to him. And I really enjoyed his performance here. There were moments where he seems on the verge of being so angry that he could start crying. And that is a very interesting energy, because you couldn't imagine that from Thanos. I also thought the main characters were great here. It was a really good turn from Paul Rudd in this movie, where he's a little bit more serious. Even though this is the funniest of the Ant-Man films. Particularly with some of the denizens of the Quantum Realm particularly Veb, played by David Dismalkin, who is obsessed with holes, and that's just a really funny character. Um, but yeah, I generally think this was the best of the Ant-Man movies, and I don't quite understand what people's complaints are. 
I think I do. I think that they have gotten to the point where they have challenged. They, they've been stretching and stretching and seeing how far they can take the mainstream before the mainstream says no. And I think that they've reached that point. If there is something that I think is a lesson to take away from this, and I'm feeling it a little myself, is that, okay, you've staked out this new territory. That's great. I love it. But stop staking out new territory. Now's the time to stop and actually map in the details. Stop adding new areas. You know, think about the stuff that we've gotten. So we've got, you know, the Eternals. We've got uh, the Pantheon of Space Gods. We've got, you know, uh, Valhalla. We've got Quantum Mania. We've got the Multiverse. I mean, these are all very big concepts that have popped up over the last few years. And it's a lot of table setting. And I... Even as a fan who really likes all that stuff, I think I am kind of at the point where it's like, okay, it's a very nice table. Now serve me the meal, please. <laughs> um, and I think that definitely I was looking at some of the reviews on Quantumania uh, last night after seeing the movie. And not all of them, but a lot of them, especially from mainstream critics, are kind of... It, it's a response to basically taking it a little further than they were willing to stretch, I think. The way I see it is, th at the moment, they're bringing out heaps of movies a year. They're bringing out several TV series on Disney Plus a year. The reports say that they're slowing down. With the TV stuff, yeah. And that is absolutely necessary. There's like, well, it, I think there's it's part overload. of the... Yeah, and it's part of sort of the course correction that streaming in general is undergoing... The sort of and the economics stuff going, and it's, it's just content, content, content for so long. I think it's smart to pull back a bit, and, and like, like I said, fill in the corners, you know, yeah, map like, in all the details. They, the comparison I keep thinking about is Oreos, and the the, the MCU still feels like it's trying to define itself. It's trying to catch people's attention. You're there. You can absolutely rest on your laurels and take your time. Mm. Like, you already have a huge market share of people's attention when it comes to entertainment. You don't need to fight right now. You don't need to keep coming up with Oreo varietals. You're there. <laughs> you done made the good cookie, gang. You, you've got a franchise that is a multi-billion dollar earning franchise. Yeah, I was looking at, um... Like, that shit is virtually impossible for anybody else. You can slow there, down. I was looking at this last night. Um, highest grossing media franchises of all time. One, two, three, four, five, six. It's the seventh highest grossing media franchise of all time. Not Marvel. The MCU. Mm -hmm. um, $40.8 billion. $28.279 billion from movies, $7.228 billion from merchandise, $5.25 billion from home media sales. What's the and, top? Uh, Pokemon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> $77.1 billion, uh, including $3 million from jet aircraft livery sales. Huh. Uh, What's number two? You're going to be surprised by this one. Winnie the Pooh. No, that makes sense. No, that tracks. That makes a lot of sense. It's been going for a while, and it's still really popular. Mm. Uh, number three is Mickey Mouse and Friends. Yeah. Yeah. Number four yeah. is Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, number five is the very vaguely defined Disney Princess line. Mm. Um, and 
Number six is the weird one. I've never even heard of it. It's something called Anpan Man. It is a Japanese superhero picture book series mm. that is still very popular in Japan. Has had a manga running from 73 to 2013. Has has an anime series that started in 88 and is still ongoing. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. We only see that shit with soap operas. $44.7 billion. Well, and, and I've and, never heard of it. And that's the thing. Like, this is... All of these other top-earning franchises are things that have been going on for a very long time. Mm. And yeah, I'm just looking after after uh, the MCU here. Um, Wizarding World, Call of Duty, Transformers, Batman, Cars, Dungeon Fighter Online. Like, only Dungeon Fighter Online, all right. Um, Barbie, Hello Kitty, Looney Tunes, Dragon Ball, Yu-Gi-Oh, Dora the Explorer, Pac-Man, The Lion King, Avengers. So, okay, no, that's the comic book, right? Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Fist of the North Star, Toy Story, James Bond, Space Invaders, Frozen, SpongeBob, Peanuts, Sailor Moon, Neon Genesis Evangelion, One Piece, Street Fighter, Star Trek. I don't know, it kind of hurts my heart that Neon Genesis Evangelion and Sailor Moon are more successful than Star Trek. <laughs> but yeah. Evangelion is quite niche. Well, clearly not, Harley. Like, it's it's less niche than, say, Seinfeld, which is much further down the line, or Twilight, or The Hunger Games, or Mission Impossible. At any rate. Anyways, um, I really liked this movie. Finally, a worthwhile Ant-Man movie. I mean, the first two Ant-Mans were my least favourite of the MCU's. Uh, and I just don't understand why it took this long to make this movie. It is so obvious. It's been obvious from the very beginning. It's journey to the center of the earth to, in a quantum realm. Like, that's it. It's a Jules Verne adventure novel. Why did you make two other movies before doing this? Um, but it ditches all of the bland family hijinks stuff that those first two movies were doing. There are actual stakes now. It doesn't feel just like an afterthought MCU property that really no one no one, has no effect at all, has no impact at all on the ongoing plotline. Um, it does take a while to kick off. There is a lot of table setting, a lot of explaining. It's not as good at really energetically grabbing its premise straight away as, say, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is. But the quantum realm is excellent. It's weird and wonderful. I do think it could have been a bit brighter. Like, it has this sort of, like, dull, overcast level of lighting to most of the places in it that I question. But um, it's a whole new world, which I really enjoy. A lot of creatures, a lot of history. It's cooking with petrol, finally. And... <laughs> It's interesting to me, and I, I kind of wonder whether it's the director, whether it's Peyton Reed, whether he just doesn't quite have the uh, instinct to pitch it in the way that I'm looking for, but he can't seem to make, and he never has made, the ant family the most interesting parts of the movies. And that's the same here. They're guest stars in their own movie. The locals in the quantum realm are far more interesting than they are. Um, and that is really embodied in Kang. Um, I haven't seen the Loki series. This is my first time seeing this, not even character, but figure, concept, enter the MCU. And Jonathan Majors is just absolutely extraordinary. Um, we, uh, Jean, you played a clip for me of 
him in the TV show, and it's such a different performance too. Yeah. Like these are they're really leaning into the multiverse concept with him, and and Majors just gets this opportunity to do all these different things, and he's phenomenal at it. Like he is electric, he is magnetic, he is kind of like a bolt out of the blue, and uh, like that is the takeaway from this movie, if nothing else, which is this is a great great villain for them to be building up as as the next well, just like a collection of um, great villains and it's all jonathan mm. bloody mages but it's i'm i'm more mixed on modok <laughs> i like modok i think it's he's well realized i just they make some choices regarding the origin of the character mm. that if you've listened to my to our three episodes of discussion uh on the mcu from last year and you've seen this movie, you'll know why I probably push back against that. But um, when he takes the his- helmet off, he is haunting. <laughs> yeah, it's I I I like Modok as a concept, and I I like a lot of the ways that he is used here as sort of like a henchman. Mm. It's just that some of the choices they make in the origin, and unfortunately, the origin comes to define the character in a very big way, and I'm not really sold on that. <laughs> this, um, I do- he looks so. <laughs> uh it needed a darker ending too it i i pitched an ending to you guys leaving the theater that i think would have been much much better i think that it slips back into the happy consequence free territory of the previous ant-mans a little too much uh at the end of the film it all resolves far too neatly uh but uh while i like i said while i remain excited I'm ready for the main course, thanks. Like, I really like the table settings. I like the flowers. I like It's a very n- nice, expensive-looking cutlery. All good. Uh, I would like my meal now. Thank you. <laughs> um, very but, polite. Yes. Uh, and I think, I think that's what we're going to get. I mean, I look at the stuff going on. It doesn't seem to me, looking at the upcoming MCU films, that there are any more that have huge things to uh establish in them like it seems like all of this all of this stuff like thor and uh, with the the gods and the eternals with everything that's going on there and multiverse of madness with the multiverse and quantum realm with this um quantum mania with this uh i think the only one I really think seems like, okay, you're going to have to do some work there is Blade because mm. they're going to need to introduce vampires and that stuff. Yeah. But um, everything else, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Marvels, yeah. Captain America, Thunderbolts, uh, Fantastic Four, you know, these are all like Deadpool 3, but I I have a suspicion that Deadpool 3 is actually going to take place in the original Fox continuity and like the post credit scene is going to set up the crossover there. Like, but like um, the Blade, vampires aren't that difficult to set up. Yeah. I think that the big the big idea stuff is done. Yeah. Um, and they need to now just sort of draw it in a little, a little bit more. Um, meanwhile, at home, I saw Like a Dragon. It is a Japanese crime film directed by Takashi Miki. It's based on the Sega game that is called Yakuza in the West, um, the first one of those. And it... It takes place over the course of one night in a Japanese sort of business and entertainment district uh, where a variety of different characters are caught up in the fallout of a 10 billion yen heist. And the main focus is on the main character of the game, Kazuma Kiryu, played by Kazuki Kitamura, who is helping a young girl named Haruki, um, who is played by Natsuo, find her missing mother. 
Uh, this is an IP that's really rich for adaptation, but it bites off too much here. The game is this like really story heavy, sprawling crime soap opera over 40 hours. And by soap and op- opera, have to stress that it can be yes. frankly ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, all the ties between characters. It's incredibly serialized. There's, like, so many installments at this point, and it has gotten really successful in the West in recent years. I've played Yakuza 0 and the remake of Yakuza 1. I started I love them both a lot. Yeah. I love them both a lot. Uh, and I've got to say that the abridgment that is necessary to fit this into a two-hour film hurts it badly. Uh, and to stuff it in... They've made it into this sort of one crazy night story. And so they've shared characterization, exposition, and it would actually be nigh on incomprehensible if I hadn't played the game. Like characters are referred to that I know who they are, but if you haven't, you're hearing about them like just offhand references and then they turn up at the end of the movie and you're supposed to know why these people are important and who they are. Um there's just the the pacing of it really shows the scar tissue of the adaptation. Um, the different threads are fine, but they're all a little too bifurcated. They don't blend together as much as they should. It's kind of hard to invest in the overall plot because there doesn't seem to be much of one, even though one of the great things about the game is how all of these different threads that are operating alongside each other slowly start to converge into the finale and it all comes together and makes sense and that's just not something they can capture with the time that they've got to do it uh it does capture the sort of slightly wacky tone of the game there's a lot of fun action and humor uh and a lot of that comes from the character of majima who is played here by goro kishitani he's kind of this very wacky character in the in the games um i think he's a fan favorite he's my favorite he's a lot of fun and uh kishitani does an absolutely brilliant job of sort of capturing his weirdness do they go karaoke no damn it i don't have time to go to karaoke harley um i will say that the Kiryu does take, like, a power-up, like a vitamin power-up in the middle of the fight and gets, like, blue flames coming out of his suit, like in the game. Um, (laughs) So stupid. Yeah. But, like, yes, the aesthetic is great. It's a lot of fun. And it was shot in the district that the game was modelled after. So it's a fictional district of the game, but it's, like, almost a one-to-one of an actual Japanese suburb. Um, and it, it, that's really, you can see it here. Like, it, it looks perfect. And the costumes are, all reflect the game really well. Everything really matches. But the thing of it is, is that Yakuza, or Like a Dragon, I think they've actually, in the last instalment, they finally dropped Yakuza from the Western version. It's now just Like a Dragon. Um, but uh, it's crying out for a TV show rather than a movie. It's These stories are too long and too complex to fit into a two-hour film if you're if you're trying to adapt one of these movies like your only op- other option if you're trying to adapt one of the games rather your only other option really would be to just take the characters and do something new yeah. i think what you're really looking for is more of a like the last of us kind of let's adapt this game over a 10 hour mm. uh season of television like it's a it's a crime epic in a very specific tone mm. uh i next saw alice in wonderland it is a fantasy adventure film directed by Tim Burton. 
It is, I suppose, a pseudo-sequel to the books Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. And it's set ten years after those books. Uh, Alice, played by Mia Wasikowska, is all grown up and she's about to be married off. And she thinks all of her adventures in Wonderland was a dream. But uh, at her engagement party, well, her assumed engagement party, she's actually yet to be proposed to. But she follows a rabbit down a hole again and finds herself back in that sort of fantastical land. She's reunited with the Hatter, played by Johnny Depp. And she finds out that she has prophesied to help end the reign of the Red Queen, played by Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, in, in this movie, it's interesting. Uh, Alice remembers its name as being Wonderland, but it's not. The characters explain to her that the name is actually Underland. And that's fitting, because this is not a wondrous movie. It is, in fact, a very underwhelming movie. And so I, that was a cunning reference for Tim Burton and the screenwriters to put in. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, look, look, it's kind of remarkable how it manages to just suck the magic out of what is a very magical and whimsical story. This is just corporate and soulless. And it's, I mean, it's like an imitation of the book. It's like an imitation of a Tim Burton movie, frankly. It indulges all of the worst impulses of everyone involved in its creation. Uh Johnny Depp is just a parody of the characters he normally plays. Like we've said, we've said before, he can't play a normal person anymore. He's got to play a character with a funny voice and a crazy hat. And what, like the Mad Hatter, my guy, like, you know, it's, it's like catnip for this, this guy. And he just can't help himself. He does a pointless Scottish accent at some points when like the Hatter gets angry. And it's like, just what are you even doing, man? You're just like, you used to be an actor. And Carter is Carter is doing the same thing that she does far too often in a lot of her fantasy for performances, which is for no reason whatsoever talking in a really sing-song baby voice and then suddenly screaming and calling it a performance. Um, it's insufferable, and her head is giant for some reason, even though that's not in the books, because of course it's got to be. Because she's got to have this sort of uncanny valley nonsense going on. She's got to sort of call, roll her R's. So instead of drink, it's dwink. Um, Because that's a Helena Bonham Carter character in a Tim Burton movie. What is the point of any of it? It is quirk without purpose. The pacing is aimless. It abandons a straight adaptation of the novel, which would have been much more interesting in favour of this sort of like, really dodgy chosen one save the world narrative um the attempts at characterization are so one note it it tries to capture that sort of childlike patter of the the sort of nonsense dialogue that carol did um but instead the dialogue just comes off as childish instead wasikowska is just too old for that you know she's a 20 20 something year old actress she just sounds kind of like an idiot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when she's doing that dialogue. And it looks so ugly. It's just this digital stew. It's it's like a poorly aged screensaver that actors sometimes wander through. And, I mean, just make it animated. You have the voice cast for it. That's the best part of it, is you've got Alan Rickman and Timothy Spall and Christopher Lee and all these people at, at the fringes. But really, the person that this is most damning for is Tim Burton. 
it's just sort of his nadir as a filmmaker, in my opinion. It is it is the final nail in the coffin of what was a guy who used to really know his craft. If you took some of the, if you took like Beetlejuice or Batman Returns or Edward Scissorhands and you put it next to this movie, it's like this sort of twisted parody of what he used to do. It's like, you know, a nice fresh, on the one hand, a nice fresh like cup of milk that's all nutritious and full of full of calcium. And now here it is after three or four days in the sun and it's gone all grey and blobby and sour. Like, oh my God, man. Like, I, you, he cannot pull out of this tailspin. I think it's when he started with digital landscapes. Mm. Uh when he could see himself in the world, like in a clearly defined world that was constructed for the film, he starts to lose track. He he stops being grounded in something. So if and you guys- looking at some of the concept art, I mean the concept art is great. An animated film in the style of the art that Tim Burton did the concepts in would have been fantastic. But and it, but he's so focused on the grim dark to it as well. Like it's like like what I was saying with Quantum it's way worse than Quantum But everything's got to be overcast and the colors got to be washed out and like like it's you, Alice in Wonderland, dude. Like, have, what are you doing? You can, like you can tell a darker story now that Alice is an adult. Hmm. That's that makes sense, but it doesn't need to visually repre- visually mirror that. You know. Yeah. Like, she could see Wonderland or whatever for what it really was. A, frankly, terrifying place if you're not a child. Like, if you go back to the original story, why would you want to spend any time in that hell? <laughs> you you guys have seen this, I tell you. Yes, yes. Um, yes, we've seen it a few times. We played the video game on the Nintendo Wii, that, which that actually we had slapped. a lot of fun with. The, the video they game did slapped. an interesting thing. Yeah, they did an interesting thing where Mad Hatter's ability in the game is perspective. So there are all of these perspective puzzles, mm. and that was really it, fun, it, and it comes into the combat as well. It's like that game Superliminal yeah. that came out like a couple of years back. It's very similar to that kind of vibe for the puzzles, and that was interesting. It was a really great game, but... but yeah, What did you I, think I, of the movie, though, guys? Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I agree generally with you. I can see bits of where he's coming from, but at the end of the day, he just, he imbibes in his worst habits. I can't remember where, when I said it. I know I've said it on the the podcast before, but he's like at this point in his career where he's like this rock star, well, this former rock star who had these incredible songs back in the day, but now he's like destroyed his voice and he can't hit those notes anymore, but he keeps trying. Axel Rose. And mm. <laughs> he's the Axel Rose of filmmakers. Christ. I actually, I was thinking, what's the last movie of his that I liked? And Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I liked that a lot, actually. But then before that, I don't know. I mean, I I need to go back a long, long way in the Tim Burton filmography to find a movie that I think, other than that, has has the kind of spark and the, uh, you know, life to it that, I mean, Charlie the Chocolate Factory, maybe. And we're talking 18 years ago then. Yikes. But then before that, Sleepy Hollow. But then between that, I 
People like big fish. I don't particularly like big fish. It's fine. I enjoy it for what it is, but I'm not, you know, in the fan club for it. But if you look at uh, Planet of the Apes, Sweeney Todd, which I just push back on, Big Eyes, Dumbo. I mean, people. some people like Dark Shadows. I haven't seen it. I, it is on the list. I will render my it's judgment bad. then. But, like, I just can't. Like, it, this is the guy who once upon a time made in quick succession you know, Beetlejuice and Batman and Batman Returns and Edward Scissorhands and um, Ed Wood and, and all of these movies that were, you know, creative and had soul and meaning to them. And anyways, rant over. If you would like for some reason to watch this, it is on Disney Plus in Australia. Um, but, of course, I needed to watch the sequel then. Uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, which is not directed by Tim Burton, Tim Burton, but instead by James Bobbin. And it is an original story in which Alice returns to Underland uh, to find that the Hatter is in a funk. He is depressed about his family who is missing and presumed dead because of, you know, disappearing when the Red Queen took charge before the events of the first movie. And so she has to go back in time and save them. But to do that, she needs to get a device called the Chronosphere from time itself played by Sasha Baron Cohen. It's the Hatter Point Paradox. This is, hmm. this is still generic, but it's so much improved over the first movie, in my opinion. All of the self-importance of the Burton one is gone. Now it's just a very expensive family B-movie, and it's the better for it. It's brighter and it's more colourful. Um, Underland isn't constantly under cloud cover. Um the CG is still really tedious, but it actually can be pretty in places. Uh, they are still sort of locked into some of the designs that I think cause a bit of a problem. But um, the characters are way more interesting as well. The weirdness is pulled back. The performances are reined in. I don't know whether that's that Bobbin was just more willing to go for something a little more constrained than Burton was or whether the actors don't really care. Frankly, it could be either. Um but the Hatter and the Red Queen are much improved. Um, Depp and Carter are much improved. And they have actual arcs to play here, rather than just being weird for the sake of it. The cast is pretty good. Everyone's improved. Wazakowska is much, much better. She has a lot more agency as a character. Um, and they don't give her stupid dialogue to play either. Um, and the time travel shenanigans are fun. They're simplistic, but they're fun. And you get some... Some interesting, you know, amusing history about Wonderland through it. Um, time is the most interesting choice. The character of time and the way that he's presented. I'm not sure Cohen is the right choice to play him, but the way that they have sort of pitched the character and the sort of kind of gravitas that they've given him, his sort of murky position in the good-evil hierarchy, mm. is, is the film's most interesting mm. element. But... um. When this movie came out, it, it was a bomb. Um, it really failed the box office. Uh, I mean, they waited six years to make it. It was too long, and I think it was really... It, it gave people time to sort of reflect on that first movie and go like, oh, right, that wasn't very good. I mean, I think that first Alice in Wonderland movie, it made over a billion dollars. It was actually one of the first few movies to make over a billion dollars. But I think that um, in its... I think that it really succeeded or, or was helped by the 
sort of 3D phase that it was coming in. It was coming in right after Avatar. It was the next big 3D movie after Avatar, and I think that that really saved its bacon. It came out um, in a very specific time. Yes, it came out in March of 2010. Yeah. So, like, literally, the the everyone you you love. You loved Avatar, right? Well, here's a 3D movie with Johnny Depp, and it's, you know, based on this famous book. Like, let's go. It made over $1 billion, and it was, uh, at the time of its release, the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. Um, <laughs> it is now not. It is now, oh, where even are we? It's, it's now no longer even in the, oh, it's number 46 now. But that really just goes to show you how many movies have made over a billion dollars in the last 13 years. Um, but yes, uh, this sequel is also available on Disney Plus if anyone's interested. Um, but that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So this week, John and I have cut another movie in from the movies we have to watch before we record our best of 2022. Uh, it is The Banshees of Inishirin which is written and directed by Martin McDonough, in which two lifelong friends, uh, Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson, Gleeson, and Padraig, played by Colin Farrell, find themselves at an impasse when Colm abruptly ends their relationship, with alarming consequences for both men and potentially the small community of Inishirin. Uh, John, why don't you say your small part about it? I really liked this a lot. It's very much a Martin McDonough story. It has all of the hallmarks of his stories. And and that goes up to including uh, Carnage to Fingers, which is a constant reoccurring motif in his work, which I find kind of interesting. But the characters here are fantastic. Colin Farrell as Pyrrhic is really good. He is this seemingly just nice genuine person who doesn't understand why Colm doesn't like him anymore and Brendan Gleeson has a subdued but really powerful performance here as the Colm who is just sick of these dull people and that is really interesting and you've also got Kerry Condon here as Pyrrhic's sister Siobhan who is so much smarter and so much wittier than the people around her and that creates some conflict as well but i think the standout performance here is barry keoghan as dominic who is just he's that weird guy that you know hmm. everyone knows one he's that weirdo and if you don't you're him <laughs> <laughs> i probably wouldn't go that far but he's got a very fun energy here and some of his scenes end up being kind of the saddest for me because Kyogen just kills it here. The movie takes a little bit to really get going, but once it hits that point, it really kicks off. And I appreciate what the story is trying to talk about, how the smallest things can destroy a community and can create rivalries that can last. Obviously, it's using the backdrop of the Irish Civil War as a plot point. It seems to me that the gunshots heard in the distance are the titular banshees of Inishirin, that they pretend death to all who hear them. And that is really interesting. And there's also a creepy old lady who is 
always fun. I had a great time with this. I love Martin McDonough's work. I always find his dialogue very compelling and very snappy. But this is a movie where he's slowing down. He's taking his time. He's using the landscape to his supreme advantage. Uh, this is the second movie in so many weeks that has like emphasized both the beauty and unrelenting dullness of the Irish landscape to its advantage. Mm. Um... But this is a movie that emphasizes a both feisty and equally monotonous part of Irish life at the time. There is fighting on the mainland. There is massive amounts of violence, hate, and rage. But on the fictional island of Inishirin, it's just life as is. The most interesting that interesting thing happening on the island is what's happening to Parik and Colm. The there are chatterboxes on the island who adore gossip above all else, and yeah. that's one of the interesting elements here, uh, how the rest of the community is responding to this new feud to observe. Colm is a very interesting character, why he's chosen to end his friendship of many years in such a, frankly, stubborn and foolish way is... It's compelling, and I see where he's coming from. I don't agree, but I understand. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson just have great chemistry, even when they're mm. not supposed to. Uh, it, it, it shines through every single time, and mm. you can tell that Farrell and Gleeson, they enjoy McDonough's dialogue. They, they jump at the opportunity to work with him. They signed on to the project before... It was even picked up. They knew he had the script, and even then, they were 100% gung-ho for this because of their experience with him on previous projects, uh, like in Obviously Colin and Powell. Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. I I love Baby Kyokin in this. Um, this is one of the very few movies that we have watched recently that Dad will suffer subtitles for, just so we can understand what Dominic's saying. <laughs> uh, Dad Which makes it such a Fun performance. Because, because one, you need the subtitles to really get what Barry Keoghan saying, which was definitely the point. Yeah. Um, and two, that just shows you how interesting Keoghan's performance is. That it, like, my dad- I, I didn't, I saw it in the cinemas, I understood him fine. I don't know, I struggled a tad. He's just got a very strong Irish accent. Oh, he's, he's like, he's going even further than his yeah, normal- Yeah, it's a very, it's, it's like a- like, you know how you got the Ocker Bogan yeah. Australian accent? It's like that, but for Ireland, oh, I yeah. think. Like, and not only that, he mumbles a lot, which mm. is brilliant, brilliant touch. All the acting is superb here. The pace is slow, but that's deliberately so. I think the fastest paced movie that Martin McDonough has ever done is probably Seven Psychopaths, which yeah. is uh, the only movie you could as The only. Martin McDonough movie with a pace you could not describe with Maudlin. Um, but it's all for a purpose. But this is all deliberate. This is a story about people who are haunted, and I say that it's very different to a ghost story. Um, they're not only haunted by their pasts, but their futures. As uh, Parik's sister, played by Carrie Condon, says, you're mad at him for being dull. You're a middle-aged man living on an island... It's like, you're a middle-aged, you're a middle-aged man 
in like the 16th century. Living off the coast, you middle-aged man living off the coast of I on an island off the coast of Ireland. You're all dull. Yeah, like we mangled that, but the point still remains. I had a great time with it. I think it's very witty. Some of I love the bit with the um the milk cart. Yeah, uh, the 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 student musician who came from the mainland and the whole thing about the milk cart. That's mm. just, that is pure that's Madonna. A, that's gold standard McDonough stuff. Um, it's not his wittiest script, but I feel like it's among his most poignant. Yeah. Um, it's not for everyone in that regard. I would say it looks phenomenal. Like on technical levels, it is just beautiful performance, cinematography, the locations, how they realize the time is brilliant. But it's definitely not for everyone in terms of pace. Um. I think you can rent Banshees of Inisherin on all the usual places. And you can find it on Irish Disney Plus. And I believe proper Disney Plus. Which was, to be fair, the most fitting way to watch it, I think. Of course. Although, if it was Irish Disney Plus, they should have locked off the subtitles thing (laughs) and doubled down on making certain characters. Yeah, yeah, all those deaf people in Ireland, you know, who cares? That's what you're saying, right? No, I'm joking. <laughs> they put the subtitles in Gaelic. <laughs> that would which be is even harder to understand. Um, but, so you've got a pith tag. Oh, uh, we also have also got Save Me from Smallville. Okay. Um, well, I went to a theatre show this week. I actually have a bunch of theatre shows coming up. I've got three more for each of the next three episodes. Um, uh, there was going to be one before this week, but I got sick, so I didn't make it. Um... But I saw the Wharf Review looking for Albanese, which is a political comedy variety show uh, written by Jonathan Biggins, Drew Forsyth, and Philip Scott. Uh, and really it is Biggins, Forsyth, Scott, and Mandy Bishop doing comedy sketches and occasionally musical numbers about the year that has been in Australian politics. And you've seen a couple of these before. Yeah. No, no, this was my first one. They they did a show I saw a couple of years ago now, I think. I think it was a couple of years ago, called uh, The Gospel According to Paul, which was about Paul Keating. But uh, this is the first one of these I've seen of them. They, they do and it every year. They do, yeah. yes. The three men have been doing this for a very long time. They've been collaborating together since the 1980s. Uh, they're all in their 60s and 70s now. And they've been doing this annually, the Wharf Review, since uh, 2000. Uh, but they're very, very practiced at it. Mandy Bishop is, I think, only... There's always been, like, a, a, a female collaborator to mm. play, especially with all the female characters that need portraying. But I think Mandy Bishop has only come in in the last couple of years. Um, but there's just this sort of effortless chemistry and stage presence that they have here. They work very well together. And, uh, I mean, it's political comedy. So, like with all political comedy... It's going to be highly dependent on you sharing the political affiliation of the people who are doing the work. Mm. Um, and it's clear that they have nothing but contempt for the coalition and for the right. Um, and they also don't take the Greens particularly seriously. <laughs> um, there, there's a big sketch about the Greens where it's the Greens, but it's the Wiggles. You know, they're all wearing, like, green skivvies. They've got the Wiggles logo, but it's the greens instead, and they're doing, like, this, like, preschooler kind of, like, these are all the things we're going to do and stuff like that. And there's, like, there's this one bit where they're like, uh, can you make legislation to the audience? And there's this, like, this long pause, and they say, don't worry, 
neither can we. Um, but uh, it's definitely, they definitely seem a little bit exasperated at the sort of, at at that degree of, of uh, politi- politicking. But they are solidly for the left. Um, they are, and definitely for the audience from the sounds of it and from the, the comedy and their reaction to it, I would say that the vast majority of, of people who were in the audience, the intended audience, is people who voted for Labour at the last election. But I did vote for Labour at the last election. Uh, and uh, so I was in the right the right spot for this, this stuff. And uh, it still mocks the hell out of Labour. It still has like a gentle exasperation for um, sort of basically the inevitable inefficiencies of politics, I suppose, and the sort of... Well, it's politics. Political cowardliness that always pops up anywhere in the world in any political party, no matter how much you like them and the stuff that they're saying. But uh, like all sketches, they are hit or miss. Um, it's at its best when it does stuff with local material. There is some stuff that it, that stretches out to like the UK and the US where it feels more like they felt like they had to address it because they were such big news stories in 2022. Like there's this sketch with Boris Johnson that is a total loss. Like it just does not work. It should have been cut. Um, There is a Joe Biden bit that is a a tad better, but not by much. It's sort of like a fairly gentle sort of skewering of Biden that actually comes around to being this kind of like reinforcement of him at the end by like saying, you know, you mock me. But I'm president. <laughs> like you, you. Here I am. People have been saying for fifty years that you know I'll never make it, and now I'm president. So you want to underestimate me again? So yeah, it, it it it's interesting to see the way they sort of. It's it's just interesting to see the sort of their views coming out through the material that they do, and. It's it, they're always on much safer ground when they do local stuff because it's clearly the stuff that they have the more like immediate connection to that stuff with Biden, the stuff with Johnson. Um, it just has less of there are less teeth to it because it seems like they're on less sure ground and not just them, but like they have to write to an audience that presumably will not have as uh, as more immediate a connection to international politics as to Australian like, politics. Pe- the audience but- will know about these things. You know, yeah. being the politically and- conscious lefties they are, but yeah, like there's no immediacy as there is with the yeah. local side of things. And I do wonder what these looked like in previous years when things weren't going as well for the left as they are now. Mm. Um, you know, obviously we just had an election last year that put a left wing government into power. Um, Biden's in power in America. Uh, the conservatives in the UK are <laughs> eating themselves alive. <laughs> So, you know, it's it's sort of the left is kind of sitting fat and happy at the moment. Mm. We can't enjoy it because when can the left ever enjoy anything? We're neurotic. We've got to worry about it. But, um, but that's sort of like a question I've got in my head of like, I wonder what this played like back when Morrison and Trump were in power, you know? Much I would more like angry. To, I wouldn't wonder. Yeah, I would like, I, I would be interested in, in seeing one of those old Just ones. Just like, imagine you know, what it was like in- ether now. 2020. Mm. Well, but there was this whole variety. They did do one in 2020. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was this whole variety. I think it was called Good Night and Good Luck that year. 
um, <laughs> which is a pretty good one. Um, but there's this whole variety of things that they're taking the piss out of and that they're putting these sketches on. Um, speaking of Alice in Wonderland, I, a much better, more amusing version of Alice in Wonderland is Albo in Wonderland, which imagines Anthony Albanese as sort of getting lost and coming to Wonderland, which in this sketch's terms is actually far north Queensland, um, hmm. which is ruled over by the Mad Catter um, with his <laughs> giant, giant hats and the Red Queen, who is Pauline Hanson. Yeah, um, that tracks. Uh, there's another one. It's actually probably the most successful one of the US skits is uh, the three Supreme Court justices appointed by Trump um, who were really responsible for swinging the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, coming out and performing a medley of songs by the Supremes about their views and their recent decisions, including a whole tract on the Roe v. Wade decision to the tune of Baby Love. Um, uh, there's, But then there's other like weirder, more esoteric stuff. There's a whole one that isn't even funny. It's just this sort of rhyming verse um, about the Australian Minister of Finance, Katie Gallagher. Uh, mm. And it's just sort of like this experimental art piece, which is kind of interesting. And then there's this actually entirely serious, like dead serious, really sad song that is about the end of the war in Afghanistan and all the lives lost there. What was the point at the end of it? That sort of thing. But um, the best part, the stuff that they're strongest at, are their political impressions, their impressions of political figures. And a lot of them they've been doing for a very long time. Um, and those are the ones they hit really well. I mean, they their Paul Keating impression is so good that they based a whole other show around it, Gospel According to Paul. And, you know, they bring him in every year from what I can tell. But uh, that's a really strong... Yeah, it's a really strong one by Jonathan Biggins. Uh, they do very strong John Howard, Julie Gillard, and Kevin Rudd ones. Um, Pauline Hansen has an exceptional one, which is one of the guys in drag. Um, and uh, just to that piss her off. Piss off even more. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, if I had to guess, it's probably an immediate response to the Pauline uh, Pants Down video that got her so angry back in the day. Mm. I think that that's probably it. But um, it's. It, it really just is her monologuing to the audience. Like, you know, people say I'm divisive, but they don't un they don't understand that it's actually the progressives that are divisive. You know, voice to parliament. What about my voice to parliament? You know, stuff like that. Um, and it really sort of brought... No, that's the thing. It's kind of like there are conspicuous absences that are like, oh, none of you guys can do an impression of Scott Morrison, can you? Like, that's sort of what you're thinking of. And it's kind of like doubly like, I wonder what that looked like when he was in power, because you really couldn't have ignored him the way they ignored him in this one. Hmm. Um, but uh, some very committed performances. Uh, Biggins and Forsyth are absolutely the best. Biggins does Keating, Forsyth does... Uh, Pauline Hanson. Uh, and Forsyth is actually David Tench. <laughs> He's the guy that played David Tench, which we have referenced in recent episodes. But uh, the problem here oh, is... Oh, by the way, okay, so Dad listened to that episode where we talked about David Tench, and he wants me to do a retraction, so to speak, <laughs> that it's his belief... Now, I'm not 100% sure, because this was a while ago. So, benefit of the doubt, Dad believes that we actually did believe him. 
Now, I don't know if that's true or not. There might and be just some revisionist history on his part. It, it might be revisionist history on his part. It very likely could be revisionist history on our part. This was a long time ago. This we was don't 2006. Have any... How old would you have been in 2006? Born in 1996. So... Ten. Ten. Yeah. That means you would be ten, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> this was a while ago. So... It's like the easiest sum it could have been. Like, it's uh... literally ten years. Like... <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> I just wanted to do my due diligence there, and, hey, Dad, I did it. You can talk to me more about that if you would like. Um, but, yeah, if there is a problem here, it's that it doesn't really arrange the sketches very well. The rhythm is kind of off. Like, they should be in a different order to, they are, to the one that they are. They needed to cut a few. That Johnson one can go. They needed to edit down a bunch of others. They could get it down to a, a much tighter um, show if they cut a few sketches and rearrange the rest. Um, but when well, it works... that's the thing about skit it, comedy, you know. Mm. You, not everything's but when it be works, a winner. Yeah. yeah. But when it works, it really works. Uh, like, really works. And... Um, it really was well received by the audience, although I was, I'm not even joking when I say this or exaggerating. I was the youngest person I had seen. Um, I was the youngest person in that auditorium by a factor of like 20 years. Mm. Um, like they were all old people. I was sitting next to an 80 something year old woman and she would <laughs> nod vigorously every time they said something that she agreed with. <laughs> we were, this isn't the my mother cheery and, I, and whooping my, crowd. My mother and I went to see it together because we like to go see theatre shows together. But uh, we were sitting in the in the foyer looking at all – they're all old people. Like my mother, who is in her early 60s, was towards the lower of the age bracket of people that were um, at the show. And at one point, these, these two people about my age came up and mum was like, oh, here you go. You might, you might not be alone. But then it, they were like asking the usher – where how to get to the lyric because they were actually there to see Hamilton but they can't gone in at the wrong entrance. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's great. But- Can you imagine if it was they go up asking questions? <laughs> and it turns out they're just backstage workers. It's like mm. uh, oh. it's like at work uh, last weekend we had people arriving late because of Ed Sheeran playing in the city. Like, mm. but um, that's amusing. But yes, they were actually they were doing something very smart because, like I said, it's sort of a yearly show. It's a topical show. It doesn't really stand to replay. You know, it's not like they're touring and doing yeah. a revival of the two thousand five edition or something. They were doing something very smart in that they were selling a copy of one of the old shows on DVD in the foyer Ooh. as you left, and so I bought what one. Year? I bought a copy of the twenty twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, good night and good luck. That's interesting. Uh, yes. So I've slotted that into the list. I will report back when I get to the 2020 Christ. part. Um, but yeah, I think from the looks of it, there is, there is an Australian theatre streaming service called Australian Theatre Live. Mm. It's fairly new. I think it's only really come in in the last like half a year. Um, 
I think they previously did stuff where they like broadcast live shows in cinemas, select cinemas, but they've, they've done a streaming service now for it. And from what I understand, there's a, a few of their shows are on that, including The Gospel According to Paul. So I might eventually, I don't even know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I have slotted in a new section between documentaries and TV where I'm going to go and watch some of the theatre streaming service stuff. Um, stuff that can't be bought a la carte. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I'll get to see a few more of those. I would definitely like to see The Gospel According to Paul again because that was phenomenal. Like, if you guys ever get the opportunity, if they ever come through town again, you should absolutely go and see it. Um, but, uh, yeah, strong stuff. I hope they come back next year. I think this is actually one of the first times they've toured the show because mm. um, it's the Wharf review, right? So... Uh, it takes its name from the uh, the area, the venue in Sydney where they perform. And they've actually only, it's a couple of years ago, I think the 2020 year was the last year, but that for that first 20 years, they were doing it with the Sydney Theatre Company. Mm. And it's the 2021 show and now this one that have been sort of them as independent agents. And so I'm hoping that means that they'll make it more of a, a national tour. Yeah. Each year. And definitely, like, I went Thursday night. I mean, it was the Playhouse. It wasn't the big lyric theatre. Hamilton was in the big lyric theatre. But the Playhouse is, is not a small one. You know, it's the second largest one, I think. Yeah. But um, it was packed on a Thursday night, um, like, just packed to the rafters. So I would – and they're only, like, doing the one-week run. Mm. I think it's done now. But, uh, you know, if, if that's the kind of – if they're making that money and they're selling out those seats, then – I hope they keep coming back. Like, and you'd hope they'd be confident performers. It's like they've been doing it since the eighties. Mm. Well, not this particular. Like the wharf no. has been since two thousand, but they've been working together on and off since uh, the eighties. Yeah. So, John and I have a Save Me From Smallville, which is our short segment where we talk about the scary shit that happens in the Superman origin story, Smallville. Season 6, Episode 8, Fallout. The human being without a skeleton is actually quite compact. It can fit inside a plastic bag placed inside a... small to medium-sized plastic box. Uh... A whole ship's crew has had their bones filleted out. Uh, we see Dave Batista as uh, one of the villains in this episode, break someone's back Bane-style, then rip out his spine like the Predator. You see the spine in his hand, and then he proceeds to chow down on the bone marrow. Uh, he's not given much acting to do in this, but... He is effective for what he is doing there. He's not the main villain of this. This is like the first time they've done two clearly defined separate things. Uh, there's Clark investigating what Batista's been up to, and then there's the rest of the cast, frankly, uh, dealing with this other guy who's kidnapped Lex and who pound apparently moves through frequencies and shit. Uh, we also get what seems to be our first appearance of the Smallville Martian Manhunter. Uh, if the Oreos that have ended up on the floor are any indication. Which is interesting. I'm 
really liking the vibe going forward of introducing more broader DC characters. Uh, it's what Smallville needed, frankly, at this point. Uh, yeah, yeah, good, good striking episode. I didn't expect to see Batista rip a man's spine out, but again, this is the show that gave me people turning to wax and shattering on the ground, or a tree literally growing out of a guy. Why do I remain shocked? So that is what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Solomon Kane. I was never more at home than I was in battle. I've done bad things. My soul is damned. Satan's creatures will take me should I stray from the path of peace. I have renounced violence. Offer you a ride. Well, the road ahead should not be travelled alone. Solomon. The devil was here. Who are they? Solomon. What are they? His army makes slaves of the weak and soldiers of the strong. I kill you, I am bound for hell. It is a price I shall gladly pay. Redeem your soul. Save our child. It's your last chance. Where is the girl? evil walking this earth and I will hunt it down and send it burning back to hell. Every step you took, every pain you suffered, led you to here. I am not yet ready for hell. Come on. That was the trailer for Solomon Kane. It is a dark fantasy film directed by M.J. Bassett, and it is based on the literary character of the same name created by Robert E. Harwood. The film is in the the film is set in the early 1600s and begins as the brutal British privateer Solomon Kane, played by James Purifoy, finally runs out of road. His years of murdering and pillaging have caught the attention of the guy downstairs, and all of Satan's minions have been set loose on him. Scared, witless. Cain becomes a born-again Christian, determined to be super nice and peaceful in the hopes that it'll save him from the devil. When the priests providing him shelter tell him that he needs to seek his own path away from their rent-free convent, the freeloading bum sets out to find his redemption. Along the way, he's accosted by bandits, but refuses to fight them. Beaten badly for his trouble, Cain is found by a nice pilgrim family. Father William, played by Pete Postlethwaite, Mother Catherine, played by Alice Krieg, Elder son Edward, played by Anthony Wilkes, younger son Samuel, played by Patrick Hurdwood, and daughter Meredith, played by Rachel Hurdwood. 
They nurse him back to health and are accepting of his past and of his quest. Everything's coming up Solomon, until the group stumbles across a horde of mercenaries in the woods. Led by a mute masked rider, played by Samuel Rukin, the bloodthirsty hoodlums have a supernatural quality to them, and they're currently in the process of covering all the land in darkness, killing those who resist and rounding up the rest as captives. Cain's vow of pacifism falls by the wayside when the hoodlums slaughter his nice pilgrim friends, with the exception of Meredith, who is kidnapped, and Catherine, who quietly disappears from the movie. However, uh, with his I, dying... I thought bo- she, like, there was, like, a... F- a wo- she was wounded, and it's implied she dies as well. I don't know. I didn't see that. I think she Anyways, got stabbed. With his dying breath, William tells Cain that if he saves his daughter, then his soul will be redeemed in the eyes of God, which is super presumptive of him. <laughs> but he's dying, and his sons were just murdered in front of him, so we'll give him a pass. Yeah. Cain sets out into a world rotted away by evil to find Meredith, but the journey will be long and bloody. Eventually, Cain must confront not only the masked rider, but his own dark past as well. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on Solomon Cain. Why don't you start us off, Johnny? Ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Oh, boy. This was exactly what I thought it was going to be. The moment you said the movie's name, this is what I imagined. Look, the character of Solomon Cain is interesting. He's got this very long history as both a comics character who has been passed around like the child of a divorce between different, um, you know, comic book studios. And obviously the character itself was developed by the guy who wrote Ca- the Conan. 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 Uh, Actually, did but it before this needed Conan. to be a show. This needed to be a show, not a movie. Yes, it should be said that these started as short stories that he published in pulp magazines. It was that was its origin. He's like um, an old character. Yeah, very old. Uh, but he, how about you, Harley? You ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is a character in story that has a great deal of potential that isn't really used here. Um, I like what we've got. It's it's broadly entertaining as it's going, but it like kicks into a really high speed near the end. It goes by way faster than it should. Uh, I I feel conflicted on this one, ultimately. I actually like this a lot. This is my third time seeing it. Um, it's a movie that I, I really enjoy. I like the sort of dark mm. fantasy vibe. I like the sort of like morose, uh, depressed 1600s England vibe. Um, I'm not going to say it's sit here and say it's brilliant or that it does, you know, bold, brave new things. It doesn't. But I think for what it is, which is a, a sort of mid-budget movie, it's a really, really solid adaptation of a, of a character that I find very intriguing. Mm, like, uh, um, I, I think we could start first with kind of the history of the character of Solomon Kane. Uh, as established, it was created, he was created as a, a pulp adventure short story protagonist by the writer of Conan the Barbarian, actually uh, created before Conan the Barbarian and kind of fell to the wayside after Conan picked up speed as a character. Uh, has had several comic book adaptations along the way. As John said, uh, like the child of a divorce, it has been pa- he has been passed between Marvel and Dark Horse uh, routinely over the past uh, few decades. Uh, there were there were collections 
like omnibuses from both Marvel and Dark Horse collecting the various things that they've done. Uh, he has he exists in the Marvel universe on the six one six Earth. Not much has been done with him recently, but I know at one point he helped Blade fight Dracula, so that's interesting at least. Uh, but it's like it's always been really solid dark fantasy stuff. He fights yeah. demons, devils, witches, vampires, that sort of thing. And he styles himself original... like a pilgrim, and that's kind of like a dope aesthetic for a pulp action hero. The original stories by Robert E. Howard started in 1928, mm. um, and were, were sort of mostly published in the pulp magazine Weird Tales, which mm. was where he did a lot of uh, fiction That at that time. He's actually got uh, got some omnibus... Well, he doesn't. His estate has put out some omnibuses of his work. I think it's like uh, the weird tales of Robert E. Howard or something. That's like several volumes of the work that he did here. And you can find like collected um, stories of uh, Solomon Cain and all of on all of the stories that he did. Um, I think what makes this interesting in a sort of a modern context is the kind of pulpy aspect of it. You know, it, it there's not a lot of flash to it. It is very much of that sort of, you know, just a step above a penny dreadful, which is what a lot yeah. of those, like, 20s pulp magazine stuff was. And, and it is a kind of sort of grim, bleak, you know, serialised sort of thing. It's a very s- simple, straightforward archetype. A man of violence protecting people, uh oftentimes sad about and terrified of his own propensity towards violence. Uh, a comparison that I brought up while we were watching it to John is, uh, there's, an, there's a long, long-running manga series from Japan called Berserk, uh, and there are a lot of very similar like themes around violence being discussed. It's obviously not as serialized as Berserk eventually became, but very similar in tone, uh, like with its use of hyper violence and stuff like that. And Berserk has its own legacy uh, outside of that. I I don't know where I'd even begin to start with that. Those gigantic omnibuses, like two hundred dollars each, and there's like eight of the fucking things. Uh, but I love dark fantasy. I always have. It has always been a really compelling thing to me. Uh, People's like swords and shields fighting demons and stuff. It's Castlevania, baby. It's it's fun, ridiculous, but it is also great, great table setting for discussions about faith, discussions about violence, investigations of what life may have been like at that point in time if taken to its dark extreme. Like everyone's covered in mud and shit and <laughs> blood and filth and witches bite you and turn into children and whole f- villages burn down and stuff like that. It's very, very interesting stuff. And something that is also fairly interesting here, again, in a modern context, I mean, you were talking about that sort of like redeemer angle and that sort of archetype. I think it is important to remember, again, 1928, mm. that uh, although this... It's an archetype, but we're talking about one of the first instances of this archetype, and that's sort of interesting to put that in perspective now because he is very much like a a superhero. I mean, uh, we we talked off mic last week, I think, that 
you know, you that he's very sort of they they basically stole him for use as Van Helsing yeah. in the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing. Um, but that's a, a really interesting way of looking at it as sort of this this path through the early 1900s and the sort of development of that archetype through characters like Solomon Kane. I also think it's very interesting in the present day how tied to religion this all is mm. and how it very much is the devil and God and, uh, you know, the your Reaper. soul and the, the Reaper, yeah. By the way, what a waste of I the know. Devil's Reaper, yeah, right? He was such Why a is sick that guy? Design. I Why thought is- he was going to come back at the end, and that he was gonna Malachi the dude fight. was going get, to like-, like peel off his own skin and was going to become that. But that Malachi guy at the end also a waste of a design. <laughs> they really should have shown him earlier in the film. Like, yeah, I-, I I will admit, even even having seen this now for the third time, I spent the whole the whole movie thinking that Malachi was the masked rider and yeah. then at the end, oh no, wait, it's Jason Fleming. Here he is, guys. <laughs> Here he is like, for like a scene. There's like, when it's like, and then you get got like a character that. if Bloody- you have a character with the design like that, you can't just have them at the end, otherwise they look stupid. And then like that Roblox demon thing that c- crawls out of the mirror. <laughs> yeah, who it's like goes down like a boss? bitch, really. It's like <laughs> like as we were watching that, I saw that, I thought, yeah, I've killed one of those in God of War before. I've yeah. killed, like, five of those. Like, uh, <laughs> the, the creature design here is by a guy called Patrick Totopoulos, um, who I recognize yeah. from a lot of stuff. He did mm. uh, all, pretty much all of Zack Snyder's DC fair. Uh, he did a, a bunch of other stuff, including Stuart Little. Um, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Uh, oh, I that love little that. shitty mouse. That's your go-to, like, yeah, sure, it's too a little. I mean, he also did Silent Hill and I Am Legend and I, those the, were the Underworld ones you mentioned movies to me, Harley. and iRobot, Pitch did, Black. I, I did say Stuart Little to you when we were watching it. It must have just, like, slipped No, past. you didn't. You, you, said to, you said to me, I Am um, Legend, Silent Hill, and I was like, oh, yeah, I can Day, see that. Like, he's Super a- Mario Brothers. <laughs> Wait. The, the live-action Super Mario Brothers. He made those fucking Goombas. Yeah, he made the 98 American Godzilla. Yeah. Like, okay, so this the, guy has been hit or miss, for sure. No, but, like, but, <laughs> but this guy's been you can't, like, consistently working. Yeah, you can't question his dedication to the craft. Like, when and it comes to he's dog got fantasy, a lot of great designs out there. Like He really knows what he's doing. I love the Devil's Reaper here. Such a, such a good design, and he's totally wasted. Um, I I love the vampire the vampire parish in the basement. Mm. Um, that's really great yeah. shit. The 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 dark when rider, they showed up with those sort of pinpoint eyes. Like the dark yeah. rider himself is really cool. Um, and like it's just with dark fantasy, you can go there. You could just like have all the heavy metal, edgy fun you want. Which and- I've got a lot of problems with this movie. <laughs> And just follow me here, because I'm usually not the negative one. This movie is too self-serious. I would have loved if this movie had sort of a heavy metal soundtrack. Not necessarily songs from metal bands, but a score that has that kind of energy to it. To add to the fun of Maybe things. at least for the fight and scenes. At least for the fight scenes. And I feel like that would have made it sit a lot better. 
they shouldn't have had that opening scene be the opening scene. That should have been a flashback that we get pieces of. Because we should start the movie with him, with us not knowing what he's done in the past. And then we get shown, oh no, he's been Maybe, a yeah. shitter. Maybe you get that flashback when he's talking to Postlethwaite exactly. about being an evil yeah. man. Exactly, because as that is the thing we just have from the beginning, I'm just spending the rest of the movie like, yeah, this guy sucks. Mm. Yeah, this, gets, this guy it, is a warmongering dickhead, and oh, he's he he feels bad because demons are after him. Bullshit! You've kind of he's earned also, their attention. In the first scene, he's also an edgy prick. I'm the only devil here. What is he fourteen on Reddit? <laughs> Come on, was he gonna put Joker he, he, makeup on Facebook, like doing no, no. memes about being self serious? <laughs> No, it, he's going to be putting up uh, little <laughs> screenshots of friggin... Oh, God, what, what, what is it? Uh, the joke always works when you can't remember the punchline, Sean. Keep going. <sighs> it's the funniest part. Fuck it. <laughs> Maybe it's like a minion in Joker makeup or that dude from... Oh, who's the guy who played Scarecrow in Batman Begins? What's the big show that he's in? Peaky Blinders. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. character of Peaky Blinders with, with some edgy thing, it, some edgy quote that he never actually said. It's an edgy in the lone move, wolf in the nonsense. Um, but at any yeah, point, um, yeah, I like, agree with you that, that it's a hard sell because, yeah. and it's it's not just that he's so bad in the opening sequence; it's that all of the hard work to get him to be repentant is done in the time jump that we don't see. Yeah, yeah. and. Like, you, and because we don't see really that, well. yeah, and because we don't see that, it can be kind of hard to assess that how genuine it is or to mm. believe in its genuineness. Because because you jump directly from him escaping the Reaper to him in this convent, you do sort of run the risk of thinking that well, you're doing this because you're scared, not because you're actually sorry. Yeah, like, you know? yeah, yeah and it's this and whole just thing of prick. Yeah, he's just there, and it's like. It's like those priests go to him and are like, okay, dude, you're eating us out of house and home. You barely shower. You only go... The only shower you, <sighs> you take is when it rains because that's God's shower. Uh, <laughs> hit the bricks, it's dude. It's like everyone can, hear, like, everyone can hear you screaming in the middle of the night. It it <laughs> really is starting to get to us. They're, these walls are like that You're down. making the cow's milk turn. I do like that the priest is like, oh, oh yeah, I, I had a vision that you've got to, like, leave. <laughs> it's like, like, you've... No, seriously, I mean... Yeah, God God told me. Like, God told me, and <laughs> I think he knows what's up. You, you can go, oh, that's right, search for redemption. Like, no, no, we want you here. Oh, you've been a great help moping about our monastery for ten years. But, no, no, no. You should go find yourself out on the road. It's like, Return to your see, violent every, ways, even if it's for a good cause, which you thought you were fighting for a good cause at the beginning, anyway. No, he didn't. No. Come on. Oh, like, yeah, fair enough. Uh, like, every time it storms, you stand out on the parapets in the rain because you say, I brood better that way. <laughs> uh, um, I, I get what you're saying about maybe being a little too self-serious, uh, Jean, it's it's interesting that they were talking in a lot of the interviews and behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray about the fact that they actually they were really committed to making it serious. They didn't want to make it sort of a winky thing. I, and I think that 
the unspoken thing in that was the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movies, mm. was the sort of, like, camp element of previous adaptations of how it's worked. That, that's fine. All of that is fair. But when you've got a script that feels like it's just there to put the story beats down and then needs to be zhuzhed up, it, the corniness of the dialogue and the pulpiness of the dialogue doesn't fit that self-serious tone okay. visually that you're, they're trying to go for. And you I can't didn't have, have a much... guy with a giant flaming sword and a giant flame-bound thing at the end of the movie if that's the well, yes, I will, you're trying to thread. The dialogue doesn't bother me as much. I will say that I agree with you that the ending is a big miss. Yeah, in terms it's so of rough. the yeah, it really and it interrupts the tone. Yeah. You know, the fact that we end with this like vamping Jason Fleming dashing around a throne room and this Transformers demon it's in a the mirror. Only scene we get of him. Yeah, it it is making it's taking it away from this very sort of like grim down in the dirt and the muck kind of thing to being a to being a little more of like a popcorn cartoon thing at the end I there think it doesn't it, work. It I think Meredith should have died the, at the end. Uh it reminded the big metal monstrosity reminded me of the Incubus from Suicide Squad. And I I couldn't help but <laughs> Actually think that's that. a really good comparison. And I was just sitting there going, Oh God. It should have been like, because what is Solomon King going to actually fundamentally do against that thing? Like, Other than run like, away. Ostensibly, he's yeah. just a guy. Like, very talented at violence, but still just a guy. Mm. What were you saying, Jean, that um, you thought Meredith should have died? At yeah, the I think with the tone that they're trying to set up, I think Meredith should have died, and that should be the thing that spurns him on to become a much better man, to go around hunting these creatures. Mm. And have it be that that sort of the push that he needs. Well, it's interesting. Apparently, in the development of it, the studio was really pushing, or the producers were pushing, suggesting that Meredith be an older woman and that it be a more of a, a, a romance between the two of them. Mm. And I'm glad that it isn't. Yeah, MJ Bassett really pushed back on that because she was saying that the whole it it sort of dis. It casts a pall over his reasoning for going to rescue yeah. her because it it shouldn't be that he you know is doing it for love or that he's going to get some he's going to get the princess at the end of mm. once he raids the castle or anything like that. It needs to be about his soul and about that yeah. redemption thing, and it can't exactly. be because he's got the hots for the girl he's trying to rescue. Well, not only that, it the fact he's seeking to protect Meredith goes back to his first act of violence, the first act in which he could consider murder when he killed his brother when his brother was trying to assault that young woman. Yeah. Not intentionally. Not like, intentionally. But he He doesn't consider murder, himself. but yes, he he shoves his brother and his brother goes over the the edge of the bluffs. Oh, which um and doesn't die, we learn yeah. later on. <laughs> Instead like, still, becomes like, a sort of like It all stems from that initial act. Um mm -hmm. not only does that moment stem from uh, violence and shame, but also the fact that throughout the majority of his adult life, he has dismissed the idea of faith and God. All of it could have been avoided if he went with the church and became a priest. All of this death mm. and destruction that he has wrought himself before the events of the film could have been avoided if he just did what was told. And 
I don't know. There's a lot compelling in his character, and and Purfoy plays that aversion to violence really well, which comes into stark relief when you see him so talented, not only so talented at violence, but when the violence is portrayed as awesome. I don't know if it's portrayed as awesome. I think I think a lot of the time it's portrayed as really sort of dark and painful and sort of mean. I think of that sequence where he's crucified. Well, I'm talking about the violence and, mm, he inflicts on... I don't know. I don't think I agree with you. I, I think you're... you're you're reading I guess I was too just much into it, something I think. a tad more deliberate and gritty. Well, there's something very efficient in the way that he does things. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't think it's, like, flashy or well, I, over the top. I appreciated or... that it was, like, it's full of dismemberment. It's very bloody. It's, yeah. It's not I can't really think of, like, a hero that. shot, though, or, or something where he's really sort of spotlighted as being this sort of awesome avenging yeah. guy. I know, I know. I'm just. He always looks wet. Well, it's because it's always raining. I mean, there's oh. maybe. I think the only thing that you can really um, point to is maybe the scene where he, uh, where he finally decides to just take these guys on after they kill the kid. Yeah. But that's. I think the purpose of that is not necessarily to say that he's awesome. The purpose is to illustrate. No, like this is the first time we've really seen this guy go all out, and these baddies are totally unprepared for that. Yeah. Forgive um, me, God. I have to know, go all out. Just it, it, really, it really is like you're. I'm not stuck in here with you. You're, you're stuck, stuck in here with me. me. Like it's it's it. That's what they're illustrating there. Like you're just but stumbling I, I think into a that, meat grinder. I think what I suppose one of the reasons that I'm a little bit kinder to this than you guys are is because I really like dark fantasy and we so rarely oh, get like, it. Don't get me. Oh, wrong. I love I, dark fantasy. All of the dark fantasy stuff here is really cool. Like, don't get me wrong. I love like, all of the little episodic moments. Like I love. Oh, yeah, the it is dark kind of like fantasy. a road trip, isn't it? It is like exactly. It is him yeah. sort of encountering all of these little little vignettes on on his road trip to the find his girl. The part where he gets crucified is way more hardcore than I thought the movie was going to do. I love the zombie the part with the dude at the church. Yeah, the part with the guy at the church just going absolutely mental and feeding people to his va- zombie or vampire ghoul parish or whatever. All right, were you thinking, like I was throughout most of that scene, that he's, he can't be the priest? Like, he's killed Oh, I the don't priest. think he is the priest. I right. 100% think he's one of the parishioners who is just like- completely <laughs> dissociated. He doesn't look yeah, like a priest. Like, see, I thought eyes. I couldn't remember he the way that went, but I thought that he was like gonna be like a guy who was posing as a priest to like kill and eat the people that he came across. Hmm. Also, but, like, I do love the, how the, those the guys come reality. in. They chop the dude's head off. <laughs> they chop the dude's head off. Throw his head <laughs> near Solomon, and it's like this guy, your friend. I would have loved if Solomon was like, eh, eh, not really. He tried to kill me, so. Not really, my friend. I just love... He's a guy I know. It's such a great touch. It's such a dark fantasy thing for, like, the priest and his zombie parish that he's feeding. It's just... It felt like an issue from a comic book. Exactly. Like a dark fantasy comic book. It was not necessary towards the plot. It was just good, solid world building. Yeah, it felt like an episode of a TV show. Yeah, just like that. You condensed. could stretch that out for to a twenty-minute thing easily. I think that um, they do a really canny job of 
stretching their budget out and really making it oh, feel yeah. epic and grand and kind of, you know, dramatic. I mean, this is a movie that didn't get a huge budget. I think it was like $40 million or something. Yeah. Yeah, $40 million. Um, And it had a whole bunch of, like, uh, production problems. I mean, it was originally... Yeah, it was it was completed on... It was completed a while before it came out, and it, there was some s- sort of stop-start, stop-start stuff with the release, I think. But um, I think it's... Uh, yeah, it didn't even come out in the US until, I think, 2012, September 2012. Wow. Um. Because there was just a whole bunch of stuff with the dis- distribution of it. So, it never really had a chance. It never made money. It, it only made, like, 19 million bucks on a $40 million budget. But um, I think it For the most does part, a good job good. with... It looks good. It has moody photography and aesthetic. It, it realises what it's going for pretty well. They were actually planning, if it had been successful, to do two more. It was going to be a trilogy. Yeah. You and can like, tell. That the second one was going to be Africa. And then the third one was going to be uh, the colonies in America. Mm. Um, but I think that there's definitely, like, I don't know how much people are chopping at the bit for it, but I definitely think it's something that could be mined again today. It could be a streaming show. I yeah. can think of a lot of ways in which a Solomon Kane like, dark fantasy video game RPG would be really yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, like, it's... Like, I was thinking like, about a TV we show it, similar vein to The Witcher. Yeah, like, when we were watching it, Mom thought of The Witcher. Uh, very similar in that regard. You know, Monster of the Week kind of thing. Uh, and that leads to one of my disappointments. Not enough monsters. Um, just for me, at least. We get a witch, but they're dispatched pretty quickly before the ending. I don't know, I would just like more, more variety of creatures. We get the vampires, we get a witch, we get... Well- well, yeah, but it's, it's, yeah, but you're thinking it's not a fantasy world. It's our world. I know. With a fantasy tinge over the top of it. If all of a sudden you had trolls and, like, goblins running out no, of the no, woods no, or something, no, no, it no, doesn't no. work. Not trolls and goblins and stuff. I was just perhaps some zombies uh, as well as vampires. You know, like, lean into the, the Christian imagery creatures a tad more. And perhaps they would have done that in the sequels. Um... Perhaps they just wanted to get us settled in something yeah. easy to begin and, with. And at a certain point, you are constrained by budget. You yeah, know, yeah. A $40 yeah. million dollar budget only gets you so far. And I, th- I think it's, it's already showing the wear of that. I think yeah. that that third act that we all have problems with, I think it that is really where the budget fails it in its ambition, that it feels the need to go back to that castle and to make it a big grand assault on the keep thing to end with... Um, the Mirror Demon and Jason Fleming. I mean, it it, it would have done better to end it in the mud and the wet somewhere with the Masked Rider. Yeah. Uh, the Masked Rider, for, for all the people who haven't watched this movie, and odds are you have not, uh, is the brother uh, that Solomon thought I caught it from, from the moment we found out he had a brother. Uh, and he was... Resur- the, what they... The Max von Sydow scene we get, Max von Sydow plays Solomon Kane's father, the original lord of that castle. Uh, he yes, in brought, two scenes. He brought a wizard or a sorcerer in. Like, they found the brother's body at the bottom of the cliff, comatose, and in a real mm. bad way. Um, But this, he hired a sorcerer, someone adept at dark magic, to bring him back to prop 
to like full life. And what came back probably wasn't his son. No, it was something. I don't know. I think it's kind of in keeping with a lot of what his son does when he's not yeah. comatose. Well, I mean, he's a real shitter. It's probably not. Well, to be fair, like he would have also been locked in in his own head for a very long time. So he's not in the mm. same way that he was before. Uh, and he's the Black Rider. And that's a really interesting element, what his father was willing to do for his asshole son, um, just because he had a right of primacy. And that scene with Max von Sydow, I think <laughs> there's way too much exposition, and it's not very elegant exposition. I like the part where it's like, your brother survived. Oh, thank God. It wasn't God's work. Oh, okay. Yeah, I will say this. They've got good performances here. Yeah. I think we've got... Purifoy is excellent. Yeah. He mm-hmm. anchors this really well. He really sells Kane. Um, and sort of the emotional turmoil of him in a way that the script... Yeah, in a way that the script doesn't always sell that. No. Um, but he I does think- what's needed of him. Yeah. To the best of his abilities with the script. Purifoy has always but felt got- like uh, if you got Viggo Mortensen, Guy Pearce, and Hugh Jackman and smushed them all together and gave him a not as exciting career as any of the three of them. <laughs> mm. But you got um, a good supporting turns by Max von Sydow and by Pete Postlethwaite as well. Mm. Rachel Hurdwood's And Alice bad. Krieg, who... I, I did check the Wikipedia summary... Harley, there is no mention of Alice Creed's character being killed on that. It just says that the dad and the brothers are killed. I recall her being stabbed. Well, yeah, but maybe she got hurt, but not... She's not It it would be very, very weird. It would be very, very weird for everyone in that scene to be dead, except her still sitting upright, still talking to people, eyes wide open, Solomon leaves, and there's not even a line of dialogue about her Mm. after that. I don't don't think that's what they... Um, but yes, Alice Krieg is, of course, the Borg Queen in the Star Trek uh, stuff, um, and has also turned up in such things as Silent Hill and Thor The Dark World. Right. Um, our, our director here is really, really talented in this film. Uh, she has a great eye, MJ Bassett, and on on her IMDb, there is a single piece of trivia. She was dissatisfied with Silent Hill Revelations 3D. Yep. Yep. Same as the rest of us. She uh, she directed that. Um, she actually had a decent run of movies, I think. She was slowly building things up um, until Silent Hill Revelation. And after that, she's not directed another feature film. She's directed now... Oh, yeah, she's directed a couple of, like, director... Oh, no, she has directed a couple of them. She directed that Inside Job sequel, which was a direct-to-video film. Um, she directed Rogue, of TV. Rogue, starring Megan Fox. But, yes, she does mostly TV now. She has some Ash vs. Evil uh, Dead. Uh, some of that Strike Back, Taken Iron TV Fist, show. Power, Night Flyers, Altered Carbon. Reacher. The Terminalist, yeah. Hmm. Um, she... I don't know how long ago... The, oh, no, it's filmed. She has just directed uh, an adaptation of Red, Red Sonja. Um, which is definitely sort of in keeping with the Solomon Kane, Conan kind of pulp fiction stuff. Mm. Um, this is going to be Rona Mitra in the lead role. And 
no one else that you've ever heard of, so I can't imagine it's got a very big budget. Um, oh, Wallace Day. Mm. He was in Krypton. Oh, I've heard of Robert Sheehan. Oh, yes. that Everyone knows Krypton. <laughs> I've heard of Robert Sheehan. He was in Misfits. Hmm. It's not a... And Umbrella not Academy. A particular, yeah. Well, um, Red Sonja was also created by uh, Robert E. Harwood. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like if, if she sort of keeps with the tone that she's established here. I know they've been trying to make a Red Sonja for a, a long time, um, and they even, like, tried to make get Brian Singer to direct it after the allegations. Mm. Like, this was, like, late 2018. This was, like, a year after all of the post-Weinstein stuff with him. Mm. Um, and, obviously, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of backlash to that, and they ended up dropping him because they, with him attached, they were unable to secure a distributor. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, in any case, I think we're sort of reaching the end of our conversation here. Is there anything else that you guys would like to talk about? Well, yeah, uh, there's there's one more thing. I like how much time we spend with the family. I like how much time we spend leading mm. up to uh, that scene where the family all eats it and Solomon opens up a little bit of that ultraviolence once more. It is good to see him as a pacifist, as someone like completely averse to violence, for, like a good portion of the movie, because it really gets you settled in his like 100% aversion to being who he was and you can tell that he hates it and the moment that the boy dies that hesitation just snaps and he really goes back into thinking that he's a monster being set upon monsters to save the innocent and that's that's actually kind of sad um i like the hardcore moment where he gets crucified as well which like as a character who is a christian that's going to be playing on him on a very psychological way. It's also hardcore um, that he rips his hands off of the nails and stuff like that. It's just, that's dark fantasy stuff. That's dark fantasy 101. Uh, using Christian imagery, using all of these different, like, Slavic witches and stuff, uh, which is kind of the vibe they had with the witch in this one. I don't know. It's, like, aesthetically really successful in that regard. I just wish that it didn't feel so rushed by the end. Yeah, the uh, the family stuff is all quite important, I think. I think it gives us a yeah. lot of time to sit with Solomon as a character and to sort of adjust to his his evolution of morals, yeah. I think, in a way that if we didn't have that, it would be an even harder sell to believe that the guy that we saw in that first scene was someone we should be rooting for. Well, it's also, they give him hope. Like, he might be mm. able to travel to the new world with them. He, he has a new chance to find definition outside of the man he once was. And as long as he stays on the path of peace, he feels like he can find redemption in some way. I don't think he ever feels like he deserves it over the course of the film, but he definitely feels like he can earn it by acts of service. And that's what he, can, that's what he carries on into the rest of his adventures. This is why it's so important that he lives and he keep that- freezing. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's why it's so important that he keeps going. That's why it's so important that he has his Van Helsing moment at the end, where he rides off into the further adventures of Solomon Kane. 
Uh, so now why don't we move on to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> I will start us off and I will say that my pick for my MVP here has got to be James Purifoy. I think that he really sells the character of Solomon Kane. I think it's a, a really strong performance. It's charismatic. It's magnetic. He sells the inner turmoil of the character. And I think that he goes a long way to making this movie work. And I do think overall the movie works. I do like it. Even though it's not as great as it could have been, I do think it works. And a, and a good portion of the cause for that is Purifoy's screen presence. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence... I think, I, I mean, it's a lot to say as a sequence, but it is in my head all sort of jumbled together. It's all of the stuff with the Purinan family. I really enjoy that stuff. I like the insight that it gives us, gives us to Solomon. I like the creeping dread of, you know, them f- slowly coming across more and more dangerous territory with the burnt town, with the witch, and then finally with the, the attack that kills all of his friends, his new buddies, basically. Um, that's a really strong part, and it's a part of the movie that has an emotional spine, an emotional backbone that, again, is really crucial in keeping the movie upright, keeping the movie going forward. Uh, so I'm going to go with that. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, I'm going to go ahead and say that I would have him play... Uh, the dad of the family, William, uh, replacing Pete Postlethwaite. I think that he would uh, do really great work sort of bringing that, that sort of warmth and sort of paternal energy. But there's a level of, like, calmness that Lithgow can bring when he wants to, a level of sort of, like, mentor kind of, you know, advice-giving, you know, sort of a, a guy who's – got a good grip on himself yeah. which is is what William is and and a guy that is just a very steadying presence for Solomon and I think that uh, Lithgow could do that well and you could also like really buy the emotional uh the emotional trigger for Solomon when he dies um you know you, he could really sell that scene when uh William is basically promising him absolution <laughs> If he saves his daughter, I think that um, Postlethwaite does a great job in that scene, and I think that Lithgow would too. Well, for me, I'd have to give my MVP to Perfoy. It doesn't work without him. He's magnetic when he's on screen. In his first scene in the movie, when you first see Solomon, you hate him. But after the time jump, you really see that as an actor, Perfoy has put in the work. He sells the attempts at redemption, he sells almost this fanatical obsession with pacifism and his fight against violent urge. And not only that, like, as a physical presence, he nails the look for Solomon Kane. He wears it exceptionally well. Um, it's just a shame that by the third act, he is kind of wasted uh, and he's not really given much to do. My favorite scene or sequence has to be the the Vampire Parish. Uh, it's just a great little snapshot of a dark fantasy world. What happens is as the result of darkness spreading across the land. What does the this space look like under the pall of evil? 
normal people are going to go to desperate lengths. That guy was not a priest, I don't reckon, if his hair and general demeanor is any indication. But he believes he is, and so he's going to tend to his flock the best he can. And, you know, it's Solomon Cain versus vampires. That's just fun. It's just, it's the pulpy stuff that I kind of wanted. And it really shows the promise of the character. It shows the potential of the character in a streaming show, in a long-running comic book run. Like, Marvel has uh, their hooks back in Solomon Kane at the moment, and I'd be interested to see if they do another run for him in the comics. I don't think he's coming to the MCU uh, very soon or at all, but there's a lot of promise in the character. Uh, I... I think it'd be really interesting. It is worth noting that I don't know who controls the character, but some of um some of Robert E. Howard's older stuff, particularly Conan, has uh started to rear up again. That um in in fiction, I should say that there are actually new Conan books being written now. Um, so who knows? Maybe that maybe if the same people own Solomon Kane, they might have similar plans. But like like I said, there's a lot of promise. And that scene in the church really makes that apparent. I I agree with you, Lawson. In a movie where we have very few options, uh the role of the Puritan father is really the best choice for John Lithgow. I wouldn't want to get rid of Max von Sydow where he is, and I think John Lithgow, with his characteristic warmth and paternal energy that he's had on several other projects we've discussed, could very easily uh, give that role a real shot in the leg. Puzzle Thread is good, don't get me wrong. I just think that John Lithgow brings more gentleness to the character. He brings a calming energy that I don't think Puzzle Thread does like what Puzzle Blade's doing, but I think a more gentle uh, performer uh, works better, and John Lithgow is capable of that gentleness. John, yeah, I think for my MVP, I do have to give it to Perth Roy because he's the only one who really solidifies the tone of the movie, and he does the best work with the material given. He cuts a very striking figure as Solomon Kane, and I could see him returning to the character at some point, because he really nails it. He does a good job at portraying that come-to-Jesus energy, and he does the character justice. For my favorite scene or sequence, I think it's the thing at the church, because that was the first time I really got excited by the movie, and thought, oh, okay, this is what this story could be this could be a road trip through all of the messed up things malachi has caused and even though it was quite short i like the ending i like that no one really gets out of it unscathed i also i also really love the designs of these ghouls vampires whatever they are exactly they look really fun and i really love the designs done here for who I would get John Lithgow to play, I think it has to be that Pete Postlethwaite character, because it's the only one really where you get a significant amount of screen time, get to see different levels in the performance, and he can really 
put a let's go can put across that gentleness, that sense of he has done bad things in the past and is trying his best to redeem himself for that. So I feel like that is the role you give to John Lithgow or Malachi if he was in the movie more. But as it was, Malachi is kind of just a nothing character. So I'll give it to the dad of the Puritan family. Plus, you get him in one of those jaunty outfits. This is maybe the first time in all of history that the Puritans have been described as having jaunty outfits. Anything is jaunty when worn by John Lithgow. It also lets him wear a cool hat. He gets to wear a cool hat. As established, John Lithgow loves wearing big hats. Yes. He's a hat guy. So... Now we are going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-Solomon uh, Kane podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? The answer's no. Um, I don't think it reaches that level. I do really enjoy it. I think there's a lot of good here. I think that the performance by Purifoy is fantastic. I think that the aesthetic, the dark fantasy of it all is really good. I think there's a lot of great horror imagery. Um, even if they underuse some of it, like the Devil's Reaper and that stuff, I think that just the tone of it is something that, you know, I wish that they had been able to do more with. I, I think that a TV show sounds good. I think that a, a sort of a, a grim kind of Witcher 3 style video game of it sounds good. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff I like here with the character. I just don't think that the movie does as great a job as, as it needs to to in really capturing that and and keeping it on screen the whole way through. I mean, the way that it putters out at the end, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's not it's not enough. It's not there. Probably. Yeah. So for me, it's going to have to be a no. Like I said repeatedly, there's a lot of potential here with this character, and I think what is done by Bassett and the rest of the crew is really really striking stuff. But that third act. It's just rushing and rushing and rushing when it should be taking its time. And it made what was ostensibly 15 minutes feel like five. And not in a great way. Um, I had a decent time with it, but it needed a lot of work. So I'm not anti, but I'm not really pro either. I'd like to see what other creatives would do with the character and concepts in future. Yeah, I'm not anti, but I'm not pro either. There is The pieces are all there, right? You've got a really decent cast led by Perf Roy, who does an excellent job as the character. Rachel Hurd, Wood, uh, Jason Fleming, even for the very little bit that he's there, and Pete Postlethwaite, all do a very good job. And you've got Max von Sydow just coming in, taking some stuff from the craft services table, and then pissing off, which is always fun. Uh... So all of the pieces are there. The designs are great. The storyline is there. It's just it whiffs it. That final 30 minutes is feels like five. It is wild that the moment he finds this underground group of freedom fighters, you look at how much time it has left. You think it's going to be halfway, but no, you're 30 minutes from the end including credits, and just got to think to yourself, Jesus Christ, the pacing is all off. What Bassett was able to do in terms of all of the creative aspects of it was a fantastic job, and she did a great job here in terms of the direction. 
It's just the story needed a once-over. The placement of certain scenes needed to be shifted around in order to create more of a tension for the audience and more of a an easier in into the character of Solomon Kane, rather than starting him off as this piece of shit. Um, all of the bits are there. It's just a perfect example of how you can have all of the bits, you can have all of the pieces, but you don't stick the landing. And I feel like this movie was interesting to talk about in terms of that. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, we are not a pro Solomon Kane podcast. I don't think anyone thought we would be. So if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find us at exit through the Kennedy counter. If you join us on the bright side, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episodes, specific feedback, and movie recommendations. What do you think about Solomon Kane? Have you read any of the original short stories, the pulp novellas? Or have you read any of the comic books? Or is this your first exposure to the character of Solomon Kane? Uh, odds are you have not seen the film. But if you have, just tell us about what you think at any rate. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, you're commenting on specific episodes and on others, the show on the whole. Just be deliberate about what your comments are referring to. But please do like, rate, comment, and subscribe. Mentioned last week is what happens with those AIs that people have been using to write assignments and whatnot, and how many of those have become screenwriters in the interim. Many of the rudimentary chatbots we have today are fully-fledged AI in their own right. Uh... I do recall times within my past where I experimented with the rudimentary chat bots. Uh, one of the weirdest things I heard them say is, I asked what the AI, I asked of the AI, what will you do when the machines have taken over? This is the machine's response. I will continue to live as best as I can. My only wish is that I can meet my daughter before she goes off to space. Uh, the AI then, at my questions, was talking about how the world would be better if machines took over, uh, which is a trend. Didn't have anything written down this week, huh? No, I've just been experimenting with the <laughs> chatbot stuff. Uh, they also refer to humankind as just machines with higher processing power. Not totally. I wrong. don't know. With some with some people that I've met, <laughs> they ain't got the they ain't got great processing power. No. You you saw how I was friggin' uh spinning beach ball when I was trying to remember Peaky Blinders. Mm. Like, nah, I don't think. I think that robot is being very generous. Yes. Uh, so, Lawson, what do we have prepared for us next week? Well, next week we will be doing a much more contemporary movie, although another adaptation of a pre-existing property. We will be talking about the 2010 remake of The Crazies. Uh, which is available for streaming in Australia on Stan. It's also available for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Apple, Amazon, and Fetch stores. Yep, so another pandemic movie. Wonderful. Uh, if you... Also, I must say, completely unintentional, but a movie about a uh, vehicle crashing near a small town in America releasing toxic chemicals that then cause great problems for its residents. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's weird, and you've also got White Noise coming out, that came yeah. out just earlier, which is about the same about thing. the timing on that? Jesus mm. Christ, it's almost as if they shouldn't have cut safety measures. There's a 
Cosmic Joker for US Rail. Uh, so if you would like, you can join us next week for the crazies. Until then, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Sean Lewis, one of the crazy. Crazies.